We're going to resume in John 14, where we left off before the Christmas uh, weekend, last weekend. If you have a Bible, you can follow along. If you don't, the words should be up on the screen. You might, if you had a bulletin, you'll find an outline there that you can take some notes on if you'd like. There are full printed messages at both exits, and feel free to grab one if you haven't. Uh, I think they have a blue cover today. And uh, all of the messages for the last 22, almost 23 years are on the uh, church website as well. We come to John 14, starting at verse 15. Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may be with you forever. That is, the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him, but you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. After a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me. Because I live, you will live also. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Well, if you were here two weeks ago, you remember that in John 14 and verse 12, Jesus makes an amazing promise that whoever believes in him will not only do the same works that he does, but even will do greater works than Jesus did. And as we saw in our study there, I do not believe that that refers to greater miracles since no one, including the apostles, have ever done greater miracles than Jesus did. And besides, to heal a body that is going to die in a few years anyway is not a greater miracle than to uh, save a soul that is eternal And so I conclude that these greater works must refer to what we, the church, do on the basis of the finished work of Christ and especially the proclamation of the gospel as it spreads to all the nations. When Jesus was here, he was limited geographically to one spot, Um, but now we have the, the gospel message And it's going out around the globe. Now the huge question that remains is, well then, how do we do uh, this overwhelming task? How do we do greater works than Jesus did? And we saw in our last study that a major factor in that is prayer in Jesus' name. In verses 13 and 14, prayer is how we wage spiritual warfare against the enemy Prayer is how the gospel advances um, as we go out to share around the globe. Now, in our text, I understand Jesus to be continuing uh, to tell the disciples how they will accomplish these greater works than he did. In addition to prayer, he gives us three more essential tools that we have to utilize if we want to see the Lord use us in his kingdom purposes. Number one, obedience in verse 15. Uh, Number two, dependence on the Holy Spirit in verses 16 and 17. And then number three, 
living in union with our risen Savior in verses 18 to 20. And so to sum that up, we can do greater works than Jesus did as we obey his commandments, as we depend on his Holy Spirit, and as we live in union with our risen Lord. Now, some of you may be thinking, well, if these greater works involve the extension of the gospel, uh, then that means evangelism. And uh, sorry, but I am not gifted in evangelism. And so this message really doesn't relate to me. I would venture to say most of us here would uh, affirm I am not gifted in evangelism. I'm certainly not. Probably very few of us are. But however God has gifted you, he wants to use you in his kingdom purpose. And your life aim should be that Christ would be exalted or glorified in and through you, uh, through whatever gifts that God has given you, so that as a complete body, the church might extend these works of Jesus. In 1 Corinthians 10.31, you'll remember the Apostle Paul said, whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Or a similar verse in Philippians 1.20, Paul was facing possible execution. And he wrote there that whether he was released or killed, his aim was that with all boldness, Christ will even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. And that should be the aim of every Christian. Whether we live, whether we die, we want Jesus Christ to be exalted through us, as we utilize the gifts that he's given us. And so as you do your part in the worldwide body of Christ, in however he has gifted you to exalt Christ, then uh, you will be a part of doing these greater works that Je than Jesus did. Uh, now these three factors then will help in that lifelong process. Number one, Jesus says that we can do greater works than he as we obey his commandments, verse 15 again, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Now, that's so important that Jesus is going to repeat it again down in verse 21. He'll repeat it again in verse 23. And then he's going to state the negative side of it in verse uh, 24. <clears throat> but the point is, love for Christ will result in a life of obedience to Christ. And if you claim to love Jesus, but you're not living in obedience to him, you better go back and examine your claim. You're either lying or you're self-deceived because all who love Jesus are going to strive to obey Jesus. Um, and that means if you don't obey Jesus consistently, you've got a love problem. You've got to go back and say, do I really love Christ? And if not, what is wrong? And that's where you begin because love is, again, the, the root, love for Christ. Obedience to Christ is the fruit of that love. Now, verse 15 is closely linked to verses 13 and 14 because if you're not living in obedience to Christ, you can't pray in Jesus' name that his work would be extended, that his name would be glorified, because it's first and foremost not true in your own life. 
And so prayer, effective prayer, is closely linked to obedience. And uh, if, if it's not, people are going to see the disconnect in your life. This guy claims to be a Christian, but he's not living like a Christian. And they're going to say, thanks, but I don't need any more hypocrisy around me. And they will not be uh, affected by your message. And so uh, obedience to Christ is essential to having your prayers answered. Notice also the fact that Jesus calls these commandments my commandments. And I believe that that points to his deity. He had the authority to command us, all people, how to live. I mean, if I said, you obey my commandments, you'd say to me rightly, who are you? <laughs> you know, what authority do you have to command me to how to live? Uh, I, I don't, but Jesus does. And also, we see um, all three persons of the Trinity here in the context. The Father and the Son are in verse 13, uh, where Jesus says, whatever you ask in my name, I'll do, so the Father may be glorified in the Son. And then, as we'll see in verse 16, we have the Holy Spirit. Now, that raises the question, though, when Jesus says, obey my commandments. Well, what are his commandments then? And uh, we'll look more at that next time. But it includes everything that Jesus taught. And I think he summed up his commandments uh, with the two great commandments of the law, love God and love your neighbor. And then if you recall back in chapter 13, verse uh, 34, Jesus applied that second great commandment to his disciples when he told them uh, that he was giving them a new commandment. And that new commandment is, John 13, 34, that you love one another even as I have loved you, that you love one another. And then he goes on and explains in the next verse that obedience to that commandment is going to impact the world. He says, by this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And so if the greater works that we are to do center on the spread of the gospel to all the nations, then it is crucial that we all work at loving one another. And if you are married, and especially if you are married and have children, you have a built-in laboratory where every day you can practice loving one another. That's the, the real test, isn't it? In the daily kind of stuff of life, husbands ask yourself every day, am I selflessly loving my wife as Christ loves the church and gave himself for her? That's your job description. Ephesians 5.25. Uh, and just think that through daily. Practical ways. How I speak to her. How I care for her. How I think about her needs. How I try to meet her needs. Just as Jesus loves you, you are to love your wife. And wives to love their husbands. Parents do you love your children and show them the love of Christ by your gracious, kind, patient, gentle behavior toward them? And if, as a parent, you do, as we all as parents have done, lose your temper with your kids, then do you go humbly 
and ask their forgiveness. Say, I wronged you. I, I ask that you would forgive me. You see, in that way, we show the grace of Christ in our relationships. And then here's a little larger laboratory here for relationships in the local church. And we are to love one another. I guarantee you, there are people in this church that irritate your personality. God designed it so. And it is in that way that we learn Christ as we learn to love one another in this local church. It grieves me when I miss somebody at church and I'll ask around and find out, oh yeah, they kind of had a falling out with so-and-so and they moved down the road to go to the next church rather than working it through. Uh, you know, if, if you claim to love Jesus whom you've not seen, then you've got to love your brother whom you have seen is kind of a paraphrase of 1 John 4.20. But the point is to do the works of Jesus, which includes seeing the gospel spread beginning in our city, in your neighborhood, you have to demonstrate obedience to Christ's commandments, the prime commandment being love. And as the world sees how you love one another, how you love them, that is the advertisement that opens the door to tell them about the love of Christ. So love for Christ then is the root. Obedience to Christ is the fruit. And that is the first way we can uh, do greater works than he did. The second way that Jesus talks about in our text, and this is really the third way, the first one is prayer. The second one is obedience. But in our text today, just obedience. And then second, uh, we can do greater works than Jesus as we depend on the indwelling Holy Spirit, and that's in verses 16 and 17. Jesus says, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may be with you forever, that is, the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it does not see him or know him, but you know him, because he abides with you and will be in you. Now, in John's gospel, we have already encountered the Holy Spirit a number of times. In John chapter 1 and verse uh, 32, John the Baptist testified of Jesus. I have seen the Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven, and he remained upon him. Jesus was full of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Jesus referred to the Spirit several times in this conversation with Nicodemus, if you'll recall. And uh, in John 3, 5, he said to Nicodemus, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. And then in John chapter 6, in verse 63, Jesus told some rather superficial disciples who were about to leave him, It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. In other words, they needed the Holy Spirit to give them that new birth, new, new life. Um, he also mentions the Spirit, or John does in John 7. I'll come back to that one in a moment. Uh, but now in this farewell discourse, Jesus begins to put a major emphasis on the Holy Spirit. Uh, it's in our text here. We'll see it down in John 14, 26. John 15, 26, John 16, 
7 through 11, and then John 16, 13 to 15. Now, there are several vital truths here, just sticking to our text, that we need to understand about the Holy Spirit. First of all, John calls him, in my translation, the helper. Uh, Some of you might have the counselor, or some versions, the original King James was the comforter. It's a Greek word that you're familiar with, probably the transliteration, paraclete. And in Greek, paraclete means to call alongside of. And the idea is to call someone alongside uh, to help. It's used of the Holy Spirit only in John 14, 15, and 16. Uh, but in 1 John 2, 2, it's used with reference to Christ. But it means to call alongside. And in extra-biblical Greek, it was used of an attorney. If you get in trouble with the law, you call an attorney alongside you, and he helps present your case to the judge or jury. Um, and in the 1 John 2, 2 reference, that's how it's used of Jesus. It says if, if we sin... We have an advocate, that's the same word, a paraclete, with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. So he pleads our our case there. Um, If you understand counselor to mean legal counsel, that's fine. If you have in your mind the idea of a therapist offering you advice, that's not a good translation to call him the counselor. Um, The old King James translated it comforter because the word comfort in 1611, meant something slightly different than it does now. It comes from two Latin words, com, meaning with, and forte, meaning strength. And so a comforter was one who came with you to give you strength, to strengthen you for whatever it was that you faced. And that was the idea of that word, and that's a good uh, uh, translation or good thought here in how to translate uh, helper. You'll notice that um, in the upper room discourse, the function of the paraclete, of the helper, is to strengthen and sustain the disciples. That's in our text here. In verse, uh, chapter 15, verse 26, it is to teach them and to bring to their remembrance all that Jesus said. In chapter 16, verses 7 through 11, we'll see the function of this um, Here it's more like a prosecuting attorney is to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Um, In verse uh, 13 and 14 of chapter 16, he will guide the disciples into all truth, and he will disclose to them the things to come and glorify Jesus. It's also significant if you'll notice that in verse 16, Jesus says, the Father will give you another helper. Jesus is the first paraclete, the first helper, but he's leaving. And in his place, the Holy Spirit will come and continue Jesus' work in and through his disciples. Now, it's vital to understand the New Testament does not teach that the Holy Spirit is some impersonal force. Some of the cults teach that, that deny the Trinity. In the Bible, the Holy Spirit is divine, and he is personal. For example, in the book of Acts, you'll remember when Ananias and Sapphira tried to fake it by saying they had given everything when they hadn't. Peter says to Ananias that he has lied 
to the Holy Spirit. And then in the next verse, he adds this, you have not lied to men, but to God. Now, you can't lie to an impersonal force. You can only lie to a person. And so the Holy Spirit is personal and he is God. When you track it through the New Testament, the New Testament writers attributed the inspiration of the Old Testament to the Holy Spirit in several places. They ascribe divine attributes to the Holy Spirit, such as omniscience. He knows all things. Uh, he can affect the new birth. Uh, he has the power to cast out demons. He has the power to baptize believers into the one body of Christ and to bestow spiritual gifts. He has the power to sanctify believers. And the Spirit is also linked with the Father and the Son in several what we would call Trinitarian texts. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit all linked together. Now here, Jesus promises the disciples that the Spirit will be with them forever. And that means that you cannot, as a believer, lose the Holy Spirit if you sin. The New Testament <clears throat> never commands us to be baptized by the Spirit uh, but, and, and, or to receive the Spirit as a second work of grace. Some of our Pentecostal brothers will ask you sometime, have you received the Spirit? And your answer should be, absolutely. Uh, the moment I believed in Jesus, I received the Spirit. And if they need a verse, you can take them to 1 Corinthians twelve thirteen. Paul says there, for by one Spirit... And remember, he's writing to the carnal Corinthian church. We all were baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free. And he stresses that word all. We were all made to drink of one spirit. So you are not commanded to be baptized by the spirit, but you are commanded to be filled with the spirit, Ephesians 5.18, and to walk by the spirit, Galatians 5. 16, and both of those metaphors, to be filled or to walk, are picturing constant moment-by-moment -moment dependence on the Spirit of God, not on yourself. Jesus repeatedly refers to the Spirit as the Spirit of truth, as he does here in verse 17. He does it again in chapter 15, chapter 16. God is the God of truth. And that means that God is the ultimate reality since God spoke all things into existence. And since Jesus is the truth, as he claims in John 14, 6, um, and Jesus came into the world, he says in John 18, he tells Pilate, I came into the world to testify to the truth. That means that the spirit of truth continues the work of Jesus by testifying of him. It is only through Jesus that we know God, the ultimate reality. And that also means, contrary to the age in which we live, this postmodern philosophical um, mindset that permeates our, our whole nation, contrary to that, there is such a thing as ultimate truth in the spiritual realm, and it is knowable. The postmoderns say, well, truth is relative and you can't know it anyway. Uh, the Bible says, no, it's not. The truth is found only in Jesus. 
And Jesus is known only through the Spirit-inspired written Word of God. And Jesus says, God, your Word is truth. And so we have truth spiritually in the Bible. And when people turn away from God, they turn away from the only source of truth, and they believe what Paul calls the lie. Now, Paul says uh, in 1 Corinthians 2, that we cannot know spiritual truth unless the Spirit of God reveals it to us. He knows the deep things of God, and it is the Spirit that reveals them. And so every day, I hope you open your Bible and you begin with a prayer, Lord God, would you, through your Spirit, reveal to me the things of Christ? Would you reveal your truth to my heart? And help me to apply it so that I can evaluate all of the philosophies and worldviews that are flooding in and discern them by your standard of truth. Um, now, the, the primary source for the Spirit's revelation of God's truth is, again, in his written word. There's kind of a movement today that says, well, God reveals himself in the Bible and God reveals himself in his creation. And they put the two on the same par. And from that, then they try to argue for evolution. Um, sorry, but the written word of God trumps the creation because we interpret the creation through jaundiced views. And we can only interpret the creation correctly when we do it through the lens of the written word of God. And so that is our, our standard, our source. Also, I might point out, the Spirit never leads contrary to the written word. And I say this because I've had young ladies, mostly ladies, a few young men maybe, but it's mostly young ladies who tell me, well, the Lord has led me to marry this young man. And when I press a little further, I find out he is not a believer and I will tell them, no, the Lord didn't lead you to do that because the Bible is very clear. You're not to be unequally yoked with an unbeliever. Oh, but I've prayed about it. And I have this inner peace about it. And I have to tell them, well, I'm sorry, but uh, your inner peace is not from God's spirit because God doesn't contradict himself. He has spoken in his word and his word is our standard and we have to obey it whatever our feelings may be. You'll also notice in verse 17 that Jesus contrasts the disciples' reception of the Spirit with the world. He says he's going to send the Spirit to the disciples, and then he explains whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him. Now, of course, no one can see the Spirit physically because he is invisible, but Jesus means they can't perceive the Holy Spirit. They can't know or understand the Spirit because the world operates on a materialistic basis. They don't understand the things of the Spirit of God. And so the world in spiritual darkness isn't going to get spiritual truth unless the Holy Spirit opens it to them. Now, you might ask the question, though, well, why does Jesus bring up the world at this point? And I think the answer is, he has just promised the disciples that they're going to go out and do greater works than he did. And when they ask in prayer, he will do 
their requests that the Father may be glorified in the Son. And I'm thinking that the disciples at this point are thinking, hey, let's go. You know, we're going to go out and do it, man. We're going to conquer the world for Jesus. We're going to see great victories for Christ. And I believe Jesus is tempering that here in a way that he will state specifically in chapter 15 and verse 20. He says there, if they persecuted me, and they're about to crucify him, they will persecute you. Uh, And then he adds, if they kept my word, they will keep yours also. So there will be some results But don't go out there and expect, boy, it's just going to be victory after victory. We're going to win the world for Jesus when Jesus says uh, the world isn't real open to to accepting uh, my truth. Not everyone's going to respond favorably. Then Jesus adds that in contrast to the world which cannot know or receive the Spirit, they don't know him, he says at the end of verse 17, But you know him because he abides with you and he will be in you. Now, not all commentators agree with what I'm going to say, but it seems to me that he is drawing a contrast between their present state of having the Spirit abiding with them and some future state in which the Spirit will dwell in them. And if you go back and remember in John chapter 7, Jesus there promised that of the one who believes in him, out of his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. And then in John 7, 39, John explained, but this he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. It was still future. He adds, for the Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. And so I understand all of that to point ahead to that great day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit in a new work of God came upon believers powerfully so that all of them were indwelled by the Spirit. Again, it's not totally clear, but it seems like in the Old Testament that was different. The Spirit was with some. The Spirit came on some for some special task that they needed his anointing for, but the Spirit did not dwell permanently with all believers until the day of Pentecost. And since then, as we saw in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, all believers are baptized by the Spirit into the one body of Christ. And Paul further affirms in Romans 8, 9, he says, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed The Spirit of God dwells in you. But, he adds, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. Uh, And so we receive the Spirit. Paul says in Galatians 3.2, we receive the Spirit when we hear the gospel and we respond to that in faith. Uh, That's when we get the Spirit. Now, Jesus tells the disciples in verse 17 that they knew the Spirit. And that's caused me to ask myself all week, uh, do I know the Spirit? And how do I know that I know the Spirit? Uh, And I would hope that you would ask the same thing. Do you know the Holy Spirit? And how do you know you know the Holy Spirit? Uh, 
remember in John 3, Jesus told Nicodemus that the Spirit of God is like the wind. You can't see the wind, but you can see its effects. When the curtain blows, you know the wind is at work. Uh, When the leaves kick up and so on, you know the wind is at work. And so you, you don't know the Spirit by some inner subjective feeling. Uh, sometimes people, oh, I just feel the Spirit. Well, how do you know whether that's the Spirit or whether you just ate something good or, you know, whether your hormones are acting a certain way? You, you don't know that by a subjective feeling. How do you know that the Spirit is at work in your life? By the effects. By the effects. Do you see the wind blowing? No, you don't see the wind. You see the effects. Is the Spirit at work in your life? Well, what are the effects? And I would say, first and foremost, has the Holy Spirit changed your heart and your desires? That's fundamental. You used to hate God, and you hated God's truth. And you would either fight against God, or you would just ignore Him and go on with your own life without any reference to God. Now, there's been a change. You love God, and you love God's truth. That change is fundamental to the new birth. You seek God. God is your life. He is your light. It used to be, if you ever even indeed opened the Bible, it was boring and it was confusing. And you just slammed it shut quickly and said, I I can't track with that book. Now, that's your food. You you just love the Word of God. You dig into it. you, You eat it. And it nourishes your soul. It used to be, if you opened the Bible and it confronted your sin, which you don't have to read very far before it does that, you hated it. Because you love darkness rather than light because your deeds were evil. But now you come to the light. And when it confronts you, you realize that's healing for my life because sin destroys. It destroys me. Sin destroys my relationships. And so when God confronts me through his word, I say, thank you, Lord. Uh, That's how I need to grow and to be healed. Uh, It used to be that you were indifferent to Christ and his death on the cross. Uh, Now you love Christ because he died for your sins. And you just think, wow, uh, Christ paid it all. It used to be that you would yield often to sin and even revel in it and enjoy it. Now when you sin, it grieves you, and you hate it, and you want victory over it, and as you grow in Christ, you experience increasing victory over sin. Your life used to be characterized, marked by uh, different qualities, hatred, depression, anxiety, frustration, being indifferent toward others, selfishness, insensible, uh, insensibility to others, insensitivity, and yielding to temptation. Now, I just named the opposite of the fruit of the Spirit. And as you have the Spirit control your life and you walk in the Spirit, your hatred becomes replaced by love. Your depression lifts and you experience genuine joy in the Lord. Your anxiety uh, diminishes as you experience the peace, 
that the Holy Spirit gives. Uh, your frustration with others is replaced by kindness toward those who frustrate you. Uh, your indifference to others is replaced by goodness. Your selfishness um, is, or your in unreliability, I should say, is replaced by faithfulness. Your insensitivity by gentleness, and then your yielding to temptation is replaced by self-control. So the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control grow in you. Used to be, you live for the things of this world. Now, you go, well, it's just stuff, and it's all going to burn, and I'm living for eternal perspective and rewards. And I could go on and on, but you get the idea as the Spirit of God works in your heart, you begin to see the effects. And you don't get all these all at once. This is a lifetime process, but they should be growing as you walk in the Spirit. And so we do greater works than Jesus, first of all, by obeying his commandments here, and secondly, by relying on his indwelling Spirit. And then finally, we can do greater works than Jesus as we live in union with our risen uh, Savior, and that's in verses 18 through 20. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. After a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me. Because I live, you will live also. And that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Now, commentators hold differing views of what Jesus means when he says, I will come to you. Some argue that he's talking about his post-resurrection appearances when he appeared to the disciples. Some argue that he's talking about coming to them in the Holy Spirit, whom he will send. And some argue for the second coming because up in chapter 14, verse 3, he said, I am going to come again. And take you unto myself. Um, in, our, in support of the first view. His post-resurrection appearances. He says that you will see me. Um, and so it at least in part refers to that. I would view either that. Or a combination with the other view. That it's the Holy Spirit. Because Jesus says. I won't leave you as orphans. Well he did leave them. He went to heaven. But he left them with the Holy Spirit, so they were not abandoned. And so I would take some combination of the first and second view there. Then Jesus promises, because I live, you will live also. And that means his resurrection guarantees our eternal life. Our salvation depends on the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. The Apostle Paul said, if he's not risen, then don't be a Christian. Just go live in the world and enjoy yourself. You're going to die. But if he is risen, then we have salvation in him. We have forgiveness of sins once and for all. And we know that one day we will be raised too, which is Paul's whole argument in 1 Corinthians 15. Um, commentators also differ on the meaning when Jesus says, in that day uh, you will know, and so on. Um, in that day could refer to um, the day after when they saw him raised from the dead. 
Some take it to refer to the final day of his second coming. I would understand it probably to refer to the day of Pentecost. In that day, the disciples would understand what they aren't understanding now. And that is that Jesus is in the Father, and the Father is in Jesus, as he says up in verse 10. And in that day, they would understand their union with Christ because the Holy Spirit would reveal it to them. Um, And that's why he says, in that day, you will know that I am, or you are in me, and I am in you. Now, Jesus is going to go on and emphasize that truth of our union with him when we get to chapter 15, and he uses the analogy of the vine and the branches, and how the branch has to abide in the vine to bear fruit, and so on. But if you've read the letters of the Apostle Paul, you know that the truth that we are in Christ is central to the Apostle Paul's whole view of the Christian life. Um, In Ephesians 1, for example, he says that we have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Every blessing is in Christ. If you're in Christ, you have the blessing. He goes on in the next verse and says, God chose us in Christ. Then he goes on in verse 7 of Ephesians 1 and says, In him, in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. And then in same chapter, verse 10 and 11, In him we have obtained an inheritance. In Colossians, he says that in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And in Christ we have been made complete. And you could go on and on and on with all of the blessings that we have. They're all contained in Christ. Uh, Paul talks about the, the surpassing riches that we have in Christ in Ephesians 3.8. And so everything is in Christ. And as we learn to live in the reality of all these wonderful truths and treasures, then we can do these greater works that Jesus has given for us to do. And so my prayer, and I hope yours will be too, that in this new year, we as a corporate body here uh, and individually, that we would see the Lord do greater works through us. We need to see more people coming to know Jesus in our city. And so pray for that. Pray that God's work through us would go forward as we obey Christ's commandments, the world will see that we love one another. As the Spirit of God controls our lives and we see his fruit grow in us, again, the world will see something they lack. And then as we live daily in all the treasures we have in Christ, again, it will be a witness to this world that needs to know our Savior. Father, I pray that you would make this a year of unique blessing for us as your people, that we would see spiritual victories like we've never seen before. I pray for those who are struggling with sin, that they would grow in love for Jesus so that they would obey his commandments. I would pray for those who are struggling with relational strife, that they would see that They need to obey the command to love one another by dying to self. I would ask, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would take possession of us 
in ways that we have never experienced, that we would see his fruit developed in our lives, that we would have the boldness of the early church in bearing witness of Jesus and his resurrection. And I would ask, Lord, that you would give us deeper understanding into what it means that we are in Christ and he is in us and that that would govern all of our lives, that this would be a year, Lord, of great fruit as Jesus does his greater works through us, through his spirit. And Lord, I would pray if there are any hearing my words today who do not know Jesus and all the the blessings that are in him, of forgiveness of sins, of eternal life, that you would open their eyes to see that it is a gift that you offer to every sinner freely if they will receive it and that you would work that miracle of the new birth in every heart and life and we will give you the glory in Jesus' name. Amen.